0: So, let's turn our hearts to God's Word in Romans, chapter 5. As I said, we're going to be having communion time at the conclusion of our service together. But right now, I uh, just want to turn our hearts to God's Word. This morning, in, in Romans 5, I mentioned this a little bit last week um, that Romans 5 is really a, a treatise on your security as a believer. Once you're saved, that God secures that salvation. It's not something you get and lose. And, and um, I remember when I was in college, we went through an evangelism explosion class. It was a uh, class put on by James Kennedy um, from Florida, and uh, he... Uh, came up with this evangelism explosion class to teach people how to share their faith. And there were two questions. If you've gone through that, you know what the questions are. The first questions you would ask someone is, have you come to a place in your spiritual life where you can say that you know for certain that if you died today, you would go to heaven? It's not a bad question to ask people. And uh, I think it's a, a probing question. And that's one of the two questions That they asked. The second question was this Suppose that you were to die today, and that you would stand before God, and He were to say to you, Why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Depending on your answer, those two questions really tells us a lot about your salvation experience or your lack thereof. Uh, You can see the importance of answering a question like that correctly. Uh, Some have complete assurance. That they're going to heaven when they die. But, unfortunately, they wrongly base that assurance on their belief that they're good enough to qualify for heaven. If you've ever asked that question to somebody, they'd say, Oh, yeah, yeah, I've never killed anybody, and I'm an American. Of course I'm going to heaven, you know, as if that has anything to do with it. Um, But how horrible it would be to die and one day stand before God and find out that you weren't good enough to get into heaven. There's not going to be any makeup exam. There's not going to be a second chance. There's not going to be a, a do over. And it's crucial to know your hope for heaven is sure. But if you've been a Christian for any time period, you know that Christians are divided with regard to assurance of salvation. I want to put a quote up on the screen of the Roman Catholic Church. In the Council of Trent, they said, "No one can come, no one can know with a certainty of faith which cannot be subject to error that he has obtained the grace of God." Um, you look at that, that quote and you realize, "Wow, that's what they believe. They want to keep you guessing. Among Protestants, there are those even within the Armenian wing of. Of Christianity, the Wesleyans, the holiness churches, a lot of the Nazarene churches, Pentecostal churches for the most part, argue that true believers can, through sin, lose their salvation and they can, quote, fall from grace. Um, Those who hold what we would call the Reformed view believe that those whom Christ has genuinely saved, the doctrines of grace, teach us that he will keep us unto all eternity. Now, I'm not here this morning to argue all the points against eternal security. That's a whole other message. But up to this point in Romans, we've learned one thing, if we've learned it at all. We have learned that salvation is by faith alone through grace alone. It's not a matter of the law. It's not a matter of works. It's not even a matter of human effort. The question that poses itself at this point is, well, is it possible, having received this salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, apart from any works that I did, is it possible to lose that salvation? Is it possible that my salvation can be lost? And that question... Dear friends, has been dividing the Christian world as long as it's been around. People have debated whether our salvation is permanent, whether we are eternally secure or not for years. It's kind of, in some circles, dumbed down to one simple little phrase. Once saved, always saved. And it's been debated literally through the centuries of Christian history. Now, there are some who teach that, well, you have to maintain your salvation. Yeah, you're, you're saved by grace, apart from works, whatever, but you, you have to maintain it. In other words, you have to keep yourself saved. Uh, you keep it by doing good works. In other words, if you fail to obey or if you openly disobey, you can lose your salvation. One of the historic denominations in our country that holds this is the Salvation Army, believe it or not. Um, I mean, they do a wonderful work with the homeless and whatnot. I, I get that. But here's what they say in their doctrine. They say, some truly converted people have fallen from grace, and the danger of doing so threatens every Christian. Now, that's a pretty serious statement. If you believe in eternal security. I wouldn't have a problem if the quote said some people who seem to be converted (laughs) have fallen away from grace, or some people who claim to be converted. But they say some truly converted people have fallen from grace and are in danger of doing and the danger of doing so threatens every Christian. So you have to ask yourself this question. Do we all live in mortal danger? Do we all, as Christians, live on the brink of damnation depending on what we do? Is our salvation conditional on our ability to maintain that salvation once we're saved by faith? To maintain works, is that sufficient enough to keep our salvation? If it is true that we fail to maintain those works, is salvation forfeited? See, that's the issue. That's a lot of words to basically say. People deal with this every day. They struggle with this in their Christian walk. Or is salvation something that cannot be lost? Is salvation something that is permanent? Now, there's a lot of different texts that people go to, some in Hebrews and whatnot, that say, oh, see, this says that you can lose your salvation. And I would argue, once you look at the text and the context of the text, you realize, no, it's not saying that at all. I believe, in what this church believes, is that those whom Christ saves, he keeps for all eternity. You think of Philippians 1.5. Paul wrote, he who began a good work in you will perfect it if you cooperate with him. No. He who began a good work in you will perfect it. He will complete it, the word is, until the day of Christ. There's no question there. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says our text today, verses 8 through 11 here, he says the argument of these two verses, particularly 9 and 10, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I suggest the most powerful is the most powerful argument with respect to the assurance of salvation or the finality of our salvation. That can be found anywhere in the whole of Scripture. He goes on to say that the only thing that goes beyond it is the immediate witness of the Holy Spirit, which Paul mentions in Romans eight sixteen. Now, if you're beginning your Christian life, or you're beginning your Christian growth, it's very important to have a foundation for spiritual growth. If the foundation is constantly moving, if you don't know you have salvation, how are you going to grow? And so I would say that being assured of your salvation is a very integral part of your foundation upon which you grow as a believer. Now, remember, just before we go into Paul's argument here there's a couple things you need to understand about the basis for assurance of salvation Uh, first of all it's this and you can put them up on the screen there you've trusted first of all in Jesus Christ alone and his death in your place to forgive all your sins and clothe you with his righteousness have you done that that's the first step That's the very first step. Have you come to Christ broken, downtrodden, realizing there's nowhere else I can go to be saved, and that he did the work for me? And you put your faith and your trust in what he did. If you answer yes, then we can move on to two and three. Secondly, ask yourself this question. What evidence of the new birth do you see in your life? What evidence is there? That you're a new creation in Christ. See, now, we're never going to perfectly live a sanctified life, right? We're not going to live a perfect life because we're not perfect people. We're sinners who have been forgiven. But there should be some definite signs of new birth. Just like there's definite signs of life in a newborn baby. One of those signs is a growing love... For God in the Christian. Somehow you should desire to grow in your love for God. You should have a desire to get to know Him through His word. You should have a desire to please Him by keeping His commandments and obeying Him. You should have a growing genuine desire for others in the body of Christ. And I would say lastly you should have a growing hatred of sin. Those are evidences just like a newborn baby yearns for the milk of a mother's breast or warm warmth around it that's evidence that that baby is alive a newborn christian is the same thing in second peter chapter 1 Verses five to 11, he writes this, and this is kind of an important thing. You can write this down or look it up. Second Peter chapter one, verses five to 11. He says, "For this very reason, he's talking about making our election sure, making our salvation sure. For this very reason, verse five, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. And then he says this in verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten... That he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into eternal kingdom. Into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you'll see evidence. You'll see certain qualities in your life. And then thirdly, if you put your faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone, His death for the forgiveness of your sins, and you see that evidence in your life. Thirdly, I would say this. There's a witness of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 16, Paul says, It's the Spirit who testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. When you become a Christian, we talked about this last week, God gives you a deposit. He gives you A surety of your faith. He gives you the living Holy Spirit. And it resides within you. And it secures us in our faith. And it witnesses with our spirit to make sure. It tells us that we are children of God. Now, with all that being said. A lot of this, especially the third one here, is subjective. I mean you may say, Yeah, you know what? Yeah, I put my faith in Jesus. Yeah, I, I have I, I do different things now, I go to church. And yeah, I guess the Spirit identifies with my spirit. You could see where it'd be very objective. This inner witness of the Spirit is when he takes the promises of salvation in the Bible and testifies to your spirit. This isn't some do 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 in the middle of the night because you had bad pizza. We're not talking about that. These are true, and, and by God's grace, we can say, you know what, I rest on them. He, he gives you a Peace. And a joy inside. Only the Holy Spirit assures you by reminding you of how he has worked the signs of new life in you. Now, we're talking here, really, the results of righteousness or the the results of justification. This whole chapter. It talks about being justified. Starts right off in verse 1 of chapter 5 in Romans. And he takes these blessings into kind of a logical step farther and farther down the path by arguing from the greater to the lesser. And he begins to use words in verse 9 and 10 like, much more than that. Or more than that. You can see he's kind of wrapping things up, but he's, he's building on this. And his reasons are this, if we're justified by Christ's blood... Justified basically means made, declared righteous before God. If we're justified by Christ's blood when we were yet sinners, and if we were reconciled to God by the death of his son while we were his enemies, then we can expect to be saved from God's wrath by the risen Savior. That's Paul's argument. And it's also an argument from the past to the future. If in the past God loved us and Christ died for us when we were yet still sinners, then we can expect the future that it will hold no judgment for us. Because we've been reconciled to him. And that's what he concludes here in verse 11. He says, As a result of all this, what do we do? We exalt in God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. So basically, the the thesis here is if as God's enemies we were saved through the death of His Son, then praise God. As His friends, the risen Savior will save us from future judgment. This morning we sang a song. I am a friend of God. That's not a trivial song. That's a true statement. If you're born again, if you've put your faith and trust in Christ, you're no longer an enemy of God. You're his friend. Now, these just aren't rational arguments that we just calmly make. Yeah, 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 I agree. I guess this is right. The force of these arguments, as in verse 11 points out, it says that we should It cause us to praise God, to exalt God. So look at the first point in our outline. Number one, if we were sinners, we were justified by Christ's blood, then much more we shall be saved from God's wrath through him. Now look at our text, because I want to pick up in verse 8 and read to verse 11, or verse 7. For no one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet Still sinners, Christ died for us. And then the emphasis this morning on our text, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, we, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. While we were sinners, we were justified by Christ's blood. That word there, being justified, goes all the way back to the argument we've been over time and time again in chapter 3, uh, 24 through chapter 4, verse 25. And we've talked about how justified means to be declared righteous. Doesn't mean you are righteous. You don't have any righteousness of your own. God says you are righteous because of the righteousness of Christ was given to you. It's a legal term. It's a forensic term. God actually acquits the guilty sinner because Christ has paid his penalty. And in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, Paul said that we are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. This is not something we deserve, beloved. This is not something that we work for. This isn't something we merit. This isn't something God looks down and says, oh, you've done enough good deeds. I'll I'll declare you righteous. No, rather, it's an undeserved gift of God. We saw that especially in chapter 4, verse 5. He says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. See, that doesn't mean that God counts faith itself as some sort of righteousness. You know, a lot of times that's what people believe. Even Christians believe that. Oh, yeah, you know, it's my faith. No, it's not your faith. Your faith couldn't save a fly. If it's your faith, and that's what you're contributing to your salvation, then you're really saving yourself. No, it's faith that's given by God. It's a gift that God gives us. Sometimes we tell people who aren't believers, well, you know, you just need to repent. You know, you're telling them something they cannot do. What's repent mean? A change of mind, change of heart. It means you're going in one direction you're going in another. I've seen a lot of people who try to repent. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You know, my life's pretty messed up. You know, I'm going to start coming to church. So they come to church and they, they repent. You know, they're, they're over here with the gangbangers or whatever, and all of a sudden now they're hanging out with the church people. That kind of repentance doesn't save you. That's not going to save you. The kind of repentance you need is a change of mind, a change of heart. And only God can do that. The Bible in the New Testament tells us that God grants us repentance out of his grace and his love. So we need to rethink sometimes when someone comes up to us and says, what do I need to be saved? How do, I, how do I get saved? What do I need to do? Is there a prayer I need to pray? I remember one time back here in the lobby, there was an individual who wanted seemed desperately to know the Lord, and I said, okay, fine, we'll explain the gospel to him. Do you understand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, all right, well, everybody left and we're in the lobby. And I said, well, why don't you just pray and tell God? Oh, why? Well, aren't you going to pray for me? And I said, well, I already prayed for you, but that's not going to save you. <laughs> well, I don't know what to say. Doesn't matter. Prayer is just like talking to anybody else. Tell God what's on your heart. Oh, I don't know. Can you help me? And then he said this, one time I went to a church and the pastor led me in a prayer. I said, well, how'd that work out for you? (laughs) Obviously not too good because we're back here doing the same thing. See, sometimes we got to remember that we were justified by Christ's blood while we were yet sinners. There was nothing in us that God looked down and said, oh boy, I need that guy on my team. He really emotes Christ likeness and he's going to be a good salesman for for this religion called Christianity down there on earth and I'm going to put him on my team no that's not how it works faith is the means of receiving the gift of justification faith lays hold of the shed blood of Jesus Christ as that just payment that we need for our sins. And then God credits the righteousness of Christ to the guilty sinner who has faith in him. That's how it works. So it's a means to receiving the gift of justification. But we've been justified by his blood, Romans 5.9 says. And that looks at the, the ground or the, the, the basis of our justification. The blood of Christ atones for our sins. In Romans 3.25, Paul wrote, God displayed Christ publicly as a propitiation, a satisfaction in his blood to demonstrate his righteousness. What's that mean? That means Christ's blood satisfied the righteousness of God, which declared the wages of sin is death. We all deserve death because we're all sinners. But because we've been made righteous by Christ's death on the cross through his blood... We don't have to face that judgment. And our text makes clear that justification is a completed action. It's not something that's ongoing. You're justified once. You don't need to be justified again if you've been justified. God has declared you righteous. Nothing will ever go against that. It's a done deal. Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 5, "...having been justified by faith." Here in verse 9, we see having now been justified by his blood. It's a past completed action that has ongoing consequences in your life. See, when you trust Christ and you trust in his shed blood to save you, God basically banged down the, the hammer and said, that's it, not guilty, game over. The penalty has been paid by my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly there, much more we shall be saved from God's wrath, it says, through Christ. It's very important, I think, that we understand. Some translators here have added for clarity the wrath of God. But literally the text reads, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. Now, obviously, it's inferred that we're talking about God's wrath. The wrath refers to the coming day of judgment, which Paul referred to all the way back in chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and the revelation of the judgment of the righteous judgment of God. So there's a present manifestation of God's wrath against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. In this world. But that's nothing. That is nothing compared to what's coming down the pike. The eternal wrath of God will one day be displayed on all those who have not been justified by faith. And the Bible says that they will be cast into the lake of fire. Look at Revelation chapter 20 with me real quick. Revelation 20. Revelation, chapter 20, verse 11. When I saw the great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the death who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Hell is a very, very real place, beloved. And one day... People will go there. I mean, when you stop and you think what God did to spare people from going there, he gave his own son to shed his blood. That was no little thing. And it was the only way that God could maintain his righteousness and at the same time forgive us as sinners. And through the satisfaction and the propitiation of Christ's blood, God can now be both the just and the justifier, as we saw in Romans 3.26, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now stop and think about this. If God loved us enough to send Christ to die for our sin, and that's a big thing, then how much more will he save us from the wrath to come? We looked at this a couple weeks ago, but just to remind you, the Bible speaks of salvation in three different phases, three different tenses. Sometimes it looks at salvation in the past Ephesians 2 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Happened the moment. We truly trusted in Christ as our Savior. He delivered us from the penalty of our sins. At other times, it talks about the process of salvation or our sanctification. 1 Corinthians 1.18 is a good example. It says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to, thus, but to us who are being saved. It is the power of God. Present tense. Our salvation is ongoing. And sometimes it even looks to the future and the final deliverance that will be ours one day on the day of judgment. The verb to be saved is in the future tense in seven of the eight uses in Romans. Here Paul wants us to know that we can know for sure that on that awful day we shall be saved from the wrath of God through the work of Christ. Very important foundation to build your faith on. Secondly, number two, if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, then how much more shall we be saved by his life? That's what he says there in verse 10. There's two things here to consider. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. We looked at this before, but remember what justification looks at. Justification looks at salvation from a legal standpoint. Whereas reconciliation looks at it from a relational point of view. So you have two words there. Both deal with salvation. But one, justification, is God lowering the, the gavel saying, not guilty. That's justification. It's a legal statement. The other one is reconciliation. And that looks at it from, now you've, your, your, your relationship with God was breached by sin. Now it's healed. You're reconciled. So verse 10 picks up on the theme of God's love for us. And he says that it's demonstrated by sending Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. But the focus here is really while we were enemies, we were reconciled of God through the death of his son. Referring to Jesus, obviously, as his son, especially brings out the love of the father, both for Jesus and for us. The Bible tells us in Matthew 3, 17, that Jesus was God's beloved son in whom he was well pleased. Jesus didn't draw the short end of the stick in heaven. You know, it wasn't like, well, we don't know what we're going to do. You know, man sin. Oh, uh, here, let's, let's, you know, paper, rock, scissors. You know, no, it didn't work that way. This was a plan that was born in eternity past. Referring to his son here brings out that love that God had for his son. The father loved the son with a perfect, unbroken love from all eternity. And yet he sent him to die on a cross so that we, his enemies, could be brought back into a proper relationship with him. At the end of the service, we're going to sing that hymn, Amazing Love, How Can It Be? That thou, my God, should die for me. Enemies is the strongest string of synonyms here that Paul's using, really. But he also says that we were helpless. We've looked at these, which means we were unable to do anything. We were ungodly, verse 6, because of so many sins. We were sinners. We violated God's holy command. But worst of all, we were God's enemies. It, it really implies a hostility. Both from our side toward God and from God to us. See, from our side, we did not want to submit to God's rightful lordship over our lives. We wanted to do our own thing. We wanted to block him out of our lives so that we could do whatever we wanted to do. We viewed him as kind of the the cosmic killjoy, you know, the guy that ruins everybody's fun. Paul describes our enmity toward God in chapter 8, verse 7. He says, For the mind set on the flesh is what? Hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. So you can't even help yourself if you're in that state. Now, you know, you might protest and say, Well, you know, I'm not hostile toward God. I don't have anything against him. But the way we show our hostility toward God may not be going out and, you know, doing something against his people or something, but it might be just our indifference toward his love. They're happy if he just stays out of their lives. And let them live as they please. And in that sense, they're enemies of God. But the greater hostility here, the much greater hostility, is seen in the word wrath. And the idea here is it's God's hostility toward someone who is unrepentant, toward someone who is not saved, toward someone who is not seeking God's forgiveness. And we need to be reminded that that once was us. So from God's side, he is opposed to all that is evil And to everyone who is in rebellion against him. That's what the Bible says. They are his enemies. He will eventually judge all who do not willingly bow before his son. Psalm 2 talks about that. When Jesus comes again, he is pictured as a powerful warrior. He's not coming back with long, flowing blonde hair with a nice smile on his face saying, Oh, come to the Savior. No, he's coming back as judge. He's coming back as a warrior. The game is over. There's no more forgiveness to be had at that point. It says that his robe will be dripped in blood. He strikes down all rebels with a sharp sword as he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Revelation chapter 19. See, this is God's hostility toward all who do not submit to Jesus Christ. Now, we don't talk about this a lot because, you know, God is love and, you know, we want to cozy up to people. But this is what the scripture says. The scripture says those who cannot submit or do not submit to God, they cannot have fellowship with those who walk in darkness. Those in darkness can't have fellowship with those who walk in light. 1 John 1, verses 5 to 6. But our text says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So something about this sacrifice, something that we're going to celebrate here in a few moments, something about it satisfied God. I mean, we should have joy in our heart this morning because we've been reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ. And it removed the barrier of sin that once stood between us. Morris, in his commentary on Romans, states this, he says, The death of Christ puts away our sin, which had aroused not our opposition, but God's. We enjoyed our sin. So the main idea here is not that we first ceased to be hostile toward God, and then God said, oh, okay, you want to play nice? I'll play with you. No, the the true picture here, beloved, is that through the death of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, He could cease to be hostile towards us, whom He purposed to save. It was through the cross that God put death to that enmity. Everybody that tried to keep the law, tried to do the right things, continually violated but now they were able to be brought near to God because they were reconciled through the work of Christ. So while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And then secondly here, B, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life, it says. Charles Hodge says this, if Christ has died for his enemies, he will surely save his friends. See, if God did the really hard thing by reconciling us to himself through the death of his son, it only follows that we should continue to be saved and we will be saved from the future judgment of God by his life. It says there, we shall be saved, points to a day of judgment ahead. You know that we are now completely identified with Christ as believers. Once you come to Christ, you are put into His body. You are one with Him. I mean, when you stop and you think about that, that's kind of a mind-boggling thing. But that's really what he's saying here in verses... uh, Look at verses, chapter 5 of Romans, verses 8 to 11... He says, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. We don't need a priest sacrificing Christ every Sunday on an altar. It's done. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Over in Colossians chapter 3, Paul explains in verses 3 and 4, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Because now you're united with Christ as members of his body, beloved, sharing in his life. We shall be saved from the final judgment of God. When God raised Jesus from the dead, he gave him all of the authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28 tells us. He exercises this authority for the salvation of his people. Charles Hodge says... Or, uh, um, uh, Paul says in Romans 8, verses 33 and 34, for God is the one who justifies, who is the one who condemns? Jesus Christ is he who died, yes, rather was also raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who also intercedes for us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says this, therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, we can know that our salvation is secure. Because if God did the greater thing by reconciling us to himself through the death of his son, he will truly, and it's much more simple for him to save us from the judgment, because now we're partakers of the resurrection life of Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 19, Because I live, you will live also. See, Paul never set forth biblical truth as a dry, boring lecture and just said, you know what, class dismissed. The more you learn about your salvation, the more it should evoke some emotional response from you. The third thing is, in closing here, the result of knowing that you are saved for sure because of God's love and grace, it is to exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 11. He says, and not only this, it's, it's like this crescendo of, of things he keeps on talking about. Don't stop there. Class isn't dismissed yet. I want to leave one more point with you. If you understand what I just shared with you, you have to exalt in God. It has to fill your heart with joy. Paul exalted in the hope of the glory of God, he exalted in his tribulations, but now he exalts in God himself. What does that word exalt mean? It means to boast in. You know, it's, it's packed with emotion. Some people are real emotional, and some people aren't. Some people who are real emotional, boy, they, you know, anything could happen and they're just, whoa, oh yeah, you know, they're just going on and on and on about it. But that word exalt is an emotional word. If you take an artist into a display of art in downtown San Francisco and you walk through that, display of art, an artist is going, to wow, look at this painting, you know, and I'll be going, yeah, next, (laughs) you know, it's kind of like going to the zoo, you know, I took the kids to the zoo over in Honolulu when we were there, and I'm like, okay, this would be fun, so we get to the zoo, and, you know, you're going through the things, and grandpa, we don't see the animal, okay, well, let's find Waldo, where's he at, you know, so they'd find him, okay, next, well, can't we look at him, he's not doing anything, he's just laying there, let's go to the next thing, it's getting hot, you know, (laughs) I mean, you see one animal, you've seen them all in my mind. But, it, you know, that's not what this word means. It means the opposite. This afternoon, some of you are going to be sitting around eating some pizza, eating some hot dogs, whatever you do around the Super Bowl, and your team's going to be going for it. And you're going to be getting up off the couch in your jersey. And they're Whoa! yelling and screaming. And other people will be sitting there. Not a smile, not a frown, nothing. Just flat. Why? Because we're all different. But this idea of being excited, exalting in Christ should come from within. It should come from understanding the fact that you have been forgiven, that your sins are gone, that for the first time in your life you can do the right thing before God. There's nothing that compares with His love. There's nothing that compares with His grace. Those are his tender mercies that he gives to us. There's no other love like the love of Christ for sinners. Praise God. I think of that hymn that is, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumph of his grace. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad, the honors of thy name. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease, tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life in health and peace. He speaks, and listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful, broken hearts rejoice. The humble, poor believe. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoners free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. See, all your sins on Jesus laid. The Lamb of God was slain. His soul was once an offering made for every soul of man. Hear him, ye deaf. His praise, ye dumb. Your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold your Savior come and leap. Ye lame for joy. That last phrase in verse 11, through whom we now have received the reconciliation, shows us that reconciliation is something that is finished. It's something we have received as God's gift, it's an objective, accomplished fact because of the cross. It also shows that God's blessings come to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, but you have to receive this reconciliation by trusting in Jesus and His shed blood to cover all your sins. Are we exalting in our salvation? Have we spent time this past week exalting in God because of all that He has freely given us through the Lord Jesus Christ? I encourage you this week to open up God's word and to ask God, Lord, show me today some of the unfathomable riches of Christ so that I can exalt in you. Thank you that I have been justified by Christ's blood. Thank you that while I was yet your enemy, a sinner lost, condemned to hell, you reconciled me through, to you through the death of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, beloved, the fact that you are saved for sure, justified by Christ's blood, saved from God's wrath, reconciled to God, although you were once his enemy, ought to cause your hearts to exalt in God with much joy. Early church father Christendom wrote this. And so the fact of his saving us and saving us too when we were in such a plight and doing it by means of only his only begotten, and not merely by his only begotten, but by his blood, weaves for us endless crowns to glory in. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that we can glory in the cross. We thank you that we can stand before you even here today and know that you are doing a work in people's hearts that they can't do. Lord, we can't save ourselves. We're, we're utterly dependent on you to do that work of regeneration in our hearts and our minds. Cause us to turn from our sin and to turn to you. That has to be a work of God. And so we pray to that end, Lord. We pray for those here in this room right now who may not know for certain of their destiny in heaven one day. Or maybe they're counting on their good works. Lord, we've seen clearly here today that if that's what we're counting in, we're utterly lost in our sin. Lord, I pray through the power of your word, through the power of your spirit, that you would draw those hearts to you. That you'll help them to fall before you in humility and proclaim, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. I pray that you would do that work. Lord, for us believers here today who are about to partake in the Lord's table together, I pray that you would remind us of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. Lord, we thank you that people have died to take this message around the globe that Jesus saves and saves forever. And Lord, it's very easy for us to grow comfortable here in America on our couches in front of our TVs with our five Bibles sitting on the shelf for many churches to go to or Christian programs to watch. But Lord, there's people in areas of the the world today that would give anything, anything, just to maybe have one page of one of our many Bibles. Help us never to take for granted the blessings that you've given to us. And so Lord, we pray that our hearts would be filled with thanksgiving, that you would be exalted and lifted up. You prepare our hearts for our communion time the time when we examine ourselves. This is a time for believers, for those who put their faith, their trust in Christ. If you haven't done that, then just pass the elements down the, the aisle to the next person. Nobody will judge you. Nobody will, will even notice. But this is a time between us and God. And I pray that you would help us to be reminded of the sacrifice that was made on our behalf. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.